All right, welcome. You can find your way to your seats. We're going to get started this morning. Welcome, glad you're here today. Uh, we are going to look at Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. So if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Hebrews 3, 7 through 19. We are looking at this passage again, and uh, some people think, well, if the sermon's bad, you don't have to fake an illness and go to the hospital. Uh, and that's, that's not the case. Uh, appreciate your prayers and your thoughts and, and all, all your uh, help this week, as uh, I just was sick last weekend and uh, progressively got worse as the morning went on until I was just completely dehydrated. And so uh, it was an unusual experience for me to be here, to read my notes, uh, to know what I want to say, to read them, and then to have my mind not be able to process and deliver the information. It was very confusing. And, uh, and so anyway, it was an unusual experience for me. And so you pray for me this morning that I don't just get the yips uh, and somehow uh, not be able to overcome this burden that, uh, that uh, psychologically is, is somewhat frustrating when you have notes and you have a prepared message and, and you simply lose the capacity and the ability to read and to speak fluently. <laughs> Sometimes I don't speak well anyway, but so I have an extra challenge uh, if there's not a lot of fluid on my brain. So uh, you pray for me this morning, and we're going to look at, at Hebrews 3, 7 through 19. Uh, if for some unforeseen reason I can't preach, I'm just going to ask Greg, Gregoire, who had the entire message worked out uh, in the spaces between when I was losing my train of thought. <laughs> He could have easily come up and spoken, and so if for some unforeseen reason that happens today, Greg, you, uh, you have the green light uh, to come close us out. Well, let me pray for us, and we'll get started looking at our text. Uh, Father, we do come to you, and uh, we're grateful. We're grateful that you're sovereign over all things. You're sovereign over the things that we plan. You're sovereign over the unforeseen things that happen in our lives as well. In everything, we can trust in you. Your word says to trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. And Father, which of us don't want straight paths? And we thank you that the call is for us to trust in you and to acknowledge you and to walk with you. We thank you that you desire to speak to people, that you're not a God who is far away and impersonal. We thank you that you are a God who knows everything about us. You know every hair on our head. You know every thought we think. You know every deed we have done. You know every act of obedience in secret. You know every act of prayer. You know every act of giving and sacrifice and good, as well as the bad. You know all those things about us, and yet you're the only one who loves us completely. We take comfort in that, that you know all things about us, and yet you love us completely. There's no one else like you on earth. There's no one else like you in the universe, and we worship you for that reason. And we thank you that you've chosen to speak to us. You speak to people, and that's an amazing thing. So we pray this morning that you would speak to us. We acknowledge by faith that you created everything that we see, by faith, we acknowledge that you created that through speaking. And so if you can create something from nothing just by speaking, we know that you can change everything by speaking to us today. Only help us to listen. 
Give us ears to hear. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, preaching is a weird thing. Uh, It's a folly. It doesn't make any sense to me why God would choose to use broken people to deliver His message. Uh, But that's what He does. He chooses to use people, and He chooses to use people who don't have it all together to speak His words to people who don't have it all together. Uh, Just a newsflash, if you don't uh, realize it, you don't have it all together, I don't have it all together, we don't have it all together. We are collectively broken people, and yet God still desires to speak into your life, and He desires to speak into my life. And He uses, one of the ways that He speaks to us is this moment right here. We come to this time once a week where we are hearing the the Bible preached through a human messenger and God has chosen in His sovereignty to use that. And that's uh, kind of uh, befuddling at times that God uh, not only speaks to us, uh, but He speaks to us through this mechanism of preaching. Uh, He uses broken people. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1.26 says, uh, Remember what you were called. Not many of you were powerful or noble or brilliant when God called you, but God chose to use the foolish things in the world to shame the things that are wise. God chose to use weak things in the world to shame the things that are strong. God chose what is low and despised, even things that are not, to bring about things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that the one who boasts must boast in the Lord. So God chooses to use weak things. He uses to, chooses to use weak people like us, and he does so for his own glory and majesty, uh, not because we have it all together and not because we are perfect or righteous in and of ourselves, but because he gives us his own righteousness and because he makes himself strong on our behalf. And so... That's the folly of preaching. So we understand that God speaks and that He speaks through broken people and He speaks through uh, situations like this. We also understand and believe that God speaks primarily through the preserved Word of God, through the 66 books of the Bible that have been preserved for thousands of years and handed down through a faithful line of witnesses and people who have testified to its authenticity and to, uh, some of you were nervous, I, I just tripped on a word, and I know some of you were looking like, is he going to fall over? Uh, maybe so, but, uh, but I'm going to hold on tight before I do, but uh, I mean, it tripped up a little bit, but, but he speaks through the authenticity of his word, and that uh, faithful line of Christ followers and believers have trusted that God's word is pure, and that it's holy, and that it's trustworthy. We also see within that preserved word of God, the most clear way that God speaks, and that is through the revelation of who? Of Jesus Christ. We read that in Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, the one whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. So we understand that God speaks to us. He speaks through preaching. He speaks through broken people. But He speaks primarily through His Word. Through His Word that contains the revelation of His Son, Jesus Christ. And we see that in the Bible, the revelation of who God is. That He's loving. Right? He completely knows you and He completely loves you. That's His omniscience. His omniscience is that He knows everything. And His mercy and His love and His steadfast faithfulness to His creation. That God deeply compassionately, fully knows you and loves you. Isn't that something? That's what the Bible reveals about this God. 
And so if He knows us, and He knows us and loves us, and if He speaks to us, then it makes sense that we ought to listen to a good Father who loves us and who is all those things that I just mentioned. Is that not true? But you might ask, well, if God is all those things, if He's good, and if He's holy, and if His Word contained is His direct message, and if He preaches and speaks to people, why is there so much evil and bad in the world? Why do terrible things happen? Why do we get disease? And why do we struggle? And why do we go through trials and difficulties? And if God is good, and if all these things that He reveals about Himself are true, why do we see terrible things? Like what we saw revealed in the, uh, the Pennsylvania uh, report about uh, abusing priests. And things like that that happen throughout the week. Why do we see terrible things? Well, and the very simplistic answer is that we don't listen to the good God who speaks to us. We just don't listen or believe the good God who speaks to us. People don't believe, one, that there is a God, or two, that there is a God that speaks, or three, that if there is a good speaking God who loves me, that because I can't hear Him, see Him, I refuse to believe Him or trust Him or place my faith in Him. And that is the most simplistic version of why there is evil in the world. God loves you and He gives you freedom. He's not going to force you to love Him or believe Him or trust Him or listen to Him. That He gives you freedom to make choices. And in the sovereignty of God, the freedom that we had, we used it to drive off the road. Right? We used our freedom to rebel against Him. And because we rebelled against Him, we introduced this disease of sin in the world. And so any one of you at any moment can choose freely to sin against God and to bring about destruction. Your life choices can bring about a destructive end. And the simplest answer is that we don't believe Him and we don't listen to Him. And this is the issue that the author of Hebrews brings to light in this passage. God speaks. We don't listen because we don't believe. Primarily because we have a hardened, closed heart to God. That's true of those who don't have faith in Jesus. There's a secondary issue in this passage, and that is that believers who do believe in Jesus, that sounds redundant, followers of Jesus, people who have given their life to Jesus, who have trusted in Him, have the ability to fall away and to be deceived by sin and to have a hard heart and to, like unbelievers, be destructive. So my main point this morning as your pastor is this. That you can soften your heart to the Lord by listening carefully and expressing trust and obedience in the God who is speaking to you. Soften your heart to the Lord by listening carefully and expressing trust and obedience in the God who is speaking to you. And secondarily, if you're already a devoted follower of Jesus, there is a warning here against falling away. Do you have a hard heart? What do you do if you have a hard heart? Why do you struggle with your faith? We're going to try to answer those questions and more. So let's look at our text this morning. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts, as you did in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for forty years. 
Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. And as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Here's the warning for believers. The second warning in the book of Hebrews. There are six or so warnings that we'll cover before we get to the end of Hebrews. But this is the second. Take care, brothers. That is, take care, Christ followers. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, which leads you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, if you hear his voice today, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses and with those whom he was provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Now, the author of Hebrews, it could be, uh, this could be a, an oral message that was delivered. And if you heard that and you missed a lot of the Old Testament references, um, let me just kind of give you a quick update. It's easy to miss this if you're not familiar with the Old Testament. And so just briefly, let me just remind you that, that the audience is an Old Testament Jewish community of people. It's not a church. Nowhere in the book of Hebrews is the word church used. So this is not a church, this is just a community of believer, a community of Jewish ethnic people who have been dispersed from the nation of Israel into the Roman place. <laughs> into Rome. They've been dispersed all around the Roman Empire. Um, they are gathering together as a community because they find among each other, similarities in culture, similarities in language, similarities in heritage. Uh, and so they gather together for feasts and for festivals and for parties and for significant community events. They are gathering together. And this person, the author of Hebrews, either wrote this letter to this community or he traveled there personally and spoke this message. And so among the community, there are three audiences. The first audience are those who have given their life to Jesus. These are Jewish people who live in the Roman Empire, who have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, knew that Jesus was a Jew, believed that he was not just a prophet or a good person, but believed that he was Yeshua HaMashiach, right? Jesus the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah who was prophesied in as early as Genesis 3, right? That, uh, that there will come a seed of man, a seed of woman who will crush the serpent's head, a deliverer. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses promised there will come a prophet like me and you must listen to him. There, the first audience are the people who have believed in Jesus. They're completed Jews. They believe that Jesus is the Messiah and they place their faith in him. That's the first audience. And so a lot of times, a lot of these passages in Hebrews are directed 
um, specifically to believing Jewish people. Now, the other two categories, the other two audiences, are people that are not believers. They're just simply not believers. And among that category of unbelievers, there are two groups of them. One is some of them liked Jesus. Jesus was useful. Jesus was helpful. Jesus was uh, noble and honorable. And you know, we, we can kind of translate this into our day as there are people who kind of like rabbit's foot Jesus, right? I need a parking space right up front. Uh, Jesus, give me a good parking spot. And boom, there's a parking spot right up front. And so lucky rabbit's foot Jesus, right? Um, Jesus is good in a pinch. Jesus is good when life is is hard and I can kind of lean on Jesus a little bit, but he's my own Jesus and he's the Jesus that's more like a genie in the bottle Jesus. I need help out of a bind. Um, The kind of Jesus that um, people will call on rarely, occasionally. Not the Jesus that we believe in and are yoked to, that we trust in, that we call Lord Jesus, that we repent of our sins, obedient Jesus. That's not the kind of Jesus that the second category likes. They like... Feel good, happy Joel Osteen Jesus, right? Just God makes you and wants you to have a happy, awesome life, Jesus, right? I know there's a lot of people who like Joel Osteen, so uh, just beware. You know, he's kind of happy Jesus, like everything is going to go well in your life if you like this Jesus. That's the second category. They're fond of Jesus, but they're not disciples of Jesus. They're not willing to be persecuted for their faith in Jesus, And then the third category, they just don't care for Jesus at all. They're not believers. They don't pretend to be believers, but they like the community and they like the fact that they share a heritage. We can see that uh, even amidst our own congregations uh, in our own uh, country here. We we can see that clearly. There are people who, um, I was a functioning atheist who was in a Catholic heritage. I didn't believe in Jesus. I didn't even believe in God. I was immoral but I knew how to navigate a Catholic culture. Right? You understand that? Is that too hard to believe? That there are cultural people who show up here just because this is part of their family heritage. Their ancestors did this. And so this is part of their heritage. They don't believe in Jesus. They don't follow Jesus. They don't read their Bible daily. They don't pray daily. They don't witness. They don't stand up for Jesus. They may even take the Lord's name in vain. There are no moral laws for them other than just the general idea of just be good and go to church. So that's the audiences that he's speaking to. But they all knew Moses. They all knew the Old Testament. And they all knew exactly what he was saying here is that the uh, Jews were sold into slavery. They went into Egypt through Joseph. They became slaves. They incubated for 400 years in Egypt until they were a million strong. And they were slaves. And God sent a deliverer, Moses. You know the story. You've probably seen the movie, right? The Ten Commandments, right? Uh, Moses sees the burning bush and he, he's called to deliver them at 80 years old. And he's a shepherd and he goes in and with miracles and wonders and signs, uh, he does all these incredible things to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt, out of slavery. He's talking about those people here in this passage. He said, you saw him, you heard his voice, you watched him, and yet you rebelled and you didn't enter his rest. What's he talking about? 
He's talking about they had a hard heart. So we're going to unpack this a little bit this morning as we try to figure out what does it mean to have a hard heart. And there are several big ideas in this text, and I'm not going to cover nearly all of them. All right, so just breathe easy. Uh, There are several big ideas worthy of consideration. God speaks. I covered that briefly. If you're still struggling with that concept alone, I can help you. Just come see me afterward. God speaks. Uh, Another concept is the hardened heart. Heart is a very important concept in this passage. Hardened hearts. He talks about straying hearts. He talks about evil, unbelieving hearts. He talks about a heart that results in rebellion, testing God, provoking God, straying away from God, not knowing God, an evil heart, an unbelieving heart, hardened, a deceived heart, and a disobedient heart. Heart is a big issue. We're going to talk a little more about that. He talks about the idea of rest. And we're going to talk more about that next week because it's covered in detail in the next passage next week. Lord willing, should we be able to complete the message today, uh, we'll move forward next week into chapter 4. But he talks about rest. And the idea of rest is this. In the Old Testament to this generation, rest was they were in slavery and God took them from slavery to where? To the promised land. To the land of promise. To the land of milk and what? And honey and promise fulfilled he promised it to Abraham and they were going to enter into this rest where there were no that where God was going to give them peace and a place and hope and joy and all the provisions that's the equivalent of what we see as believers as our eternal rest in heaven okay you clear old testament they were in slavery delivered from slavery into into rest into the promised land for us we were delivered from slavery to sin Right? This was a picture of what Jesus would do. He would deliver us from sin and he would deliver us to his kingdom, right? To heaven. That's rest, and we'll talk more about rest. It's an interesting way to think of heaven, right? It's a wonderful way to think about heaven for those of us who are tired. Remember that guy that tattooed on his face, always tired? Right? Do you see that? It's how we feel, right? We're just exhausted. And heaven is this eternal rest. So we're going to talk about that next week. We're going to talk about the warning for followers of Jesus not to fall away. Believers who fall away are a painful reality. We're going to talk about that. Uh, The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is mentioned here again in verse 14. Um, We're going to talk about listening to God with a softened heart, a tender heart toward God that listens and obeys. And the hard reality that many people who are here today will not enter into God's rest Because they simply refuse to listen. So let's just focus on a couple of those things this morning. And let's start with the idea of a hardened heart. How do you know if you have a hard heart? What does it mean to have a hard heart? When the Bible talks about heart, it considers that to be the hub of human emotion. It's what we would package together with your gut, right? You feel it in your gut and you also think it with your mind. And it's the combination of your, your heart, your passion, your gut, and your mind. It's all those things combined and it's kind of the center of Hebrew thought. And it's what the Bible describes of as your heart, not the beating organ, right, that pumps. That's not what the Bible is talking about when it's talking about your heart. It's not talking about your organ. It's talking about your mind and your passion and your soul and your, it's that gut sort of instinct that is the center of you. It's the hub of human personality producing the things that we would normally ascribe to our mind. And to have a hardened heart is to have a range of symptoms 
that are generally in opposition to someone or something. All right? So if you have a hard heart, it's generally that you are stubbornly opposed to someone or something. It might include disbelief, doubt, hate, indifference, or disregard. Disregard completely. The author of Hebrews helps us diagnose what does it look like to have the condition of hard-heartedness. So you might ask yourself, am I hard-hearted? Am I hard-hearted? Here's a checklist from the text we just read, verses 7 through 19, that describe hard-heartedness. Number one, you suspect that God is real. You suspect that God is real and He speaks to us and that He's even trying to speak to you, maybe even right now, right? God is trying to speak right now uh, and you refuse to listen. The author points to the Exodus generation saying they refuse to listen. Multiple times I looked up every verse in the Bible that uses the word listen and every word in the Bible that uses the word hear and the promise is given and fulfilled for those who listen and respond in faith and obedience. The problem, the, the, the prop, promise is not given to those who are hard-hearted and refuse to listen. The author points to this Exodus generation that they saw God, they heard Him, but they just didn't listen with regard and obedience. A friend of mine, uh, actually my pastor Craig, has a sister who's deaf, and he always used to use this illustration that when... Uh, his sister was in an argument with his mother uh, that they would just be signing furiously toward each other and that when she was done, she would just simply close her eyes. And there's nothing her mother could do but stomp off. She couldn't, her voice couldn't carry. Uh, her voice couldn't... There was nothing... The argument was over. The conversation ended because she just simply closed her eyes. And that was her power right over the argument to her mother. And this is what it looks like for us to not listen. We have the ability to stop our ears like a child covering his ears. I don't want to hear it anymore. And this is what the Israelites did. They closed their eyes. They closed their ears. People who have a hard heart might even know that God is trying to speak to them, but they refuse to listen. They avoid church. They check out during the sermon. Uh, I've watched this over and over again. People who roll their eyes or sigh or shift or sleep or check their watch or their phone or they're constantly scrolling or they're doodling or whatever. Now listen, I don't care about that. I'm not like the sermon police. Um, A couple hundred years ago, they had a guy who would walk around with a club and he would knock you on the head if you weren't listening to the sermon. Can you believe that? That's true. Somebody would be walking the aisles and if they saw you doodle or doze off, you would get thumped by a club or something. I don't care. Uh, I'm not the sermon police. I'm just saying that that reveals a hardened heart. I'm just saying that that reveals. When you're you're so hardened toward God that you refuse to listen to a sermon or to a message or to a song or to a prayer, when you're constantly shifting and thinking about what's next and what's not this... It could reveal a hardened heart. And the second uh, clue is that even if you hear his voice, you have no regard for it. You have no regard for it. He, he described the process here that they heard his voice, but they weren't obedient. So you could hear his voice and say, I hear it clearly, I'm just not going to do it. You could hear it clearly and have delayed obedience. 
which, by the way, is just simply disobedience, right? Delayed obedience that says, I hear you, I understand you, and I intend to follow what you say. I'll just do it later. And you never kind of get around to obedience, and it stunts your growth as a Christ follower or stops your ears as an unbeliever. So there's no obedience even if you hear him. There's delayed obedience, which is just disobedience. Then there's just plain old disobedience. I I hear you. I understand what you want me to do. I'm just not going to do it. And then there's rebellion, which is what categorized the Israelites. Not only do I hear you clearly, not only do I understand what you want me to do, I disregard what you want me to do, and now I'm going to do the opposite. Listen, there are people in this room right now who week in and week out hear the words I'm saying, understand them clearly, and walk out of here and do the exact opposite, which not only reveals a hardened heart, it reveals the true uh, being furthest from God, which is a rebellious heart. And so that bears consequences. There is a consequence for not listening and not obeying. They also put God to the test. Uh, In this passage, that reveals a hardened heart. Putting God to the test or provoking God says, I hear you, I understand you, but I'm not going to believe unless you give me a Maserati or unless you help me win the lottery or I'm not going to believe unless you do for me. And by the way, all of our tests of faith usually are pretty self-serving, are they not? You give me health. You give me a good paycheck. You give me a good wife or a good husband or good kids or a good job or a good career or you get rid of this illness or this mental issue or you do for me and I'll believe you. And God refuses to play that game. He says, I'm sufficient. I gave you my son. I'm not going to give you anything more. I gave you what was most precious to me and now you want me to jump through another hoop? Now you want something better to drive before you believe that I gave my only son? This is what it means to provoke God, and it provokes His anger and His wrath. The last thing, the last way you know that you have a hard heart is that you're hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And this is duly applied to believers and unbelievers. Because you can be a believer and be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Listen to this paragraph that helps understand the effects of sin. The author writes, sin causes hearts to grow hard especially continual and unrepentant sin. We know that if we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and will forgive us our sins. That's 1 John 1.9. However, if we don't confess our sins, they have a cumulative and desensitizing effect on our conscience, making it difficult even to distinguish right from wrong. And this sinful and hardened heart is tantamount to the seared conscience that Paul speaks of. In 1 Timothy 4, Scripture makes it very clear that if we relentlessly continue to engage in sin, there will come a time when God will finally give us over to that sin and say, have it your way. This is the highest form of judgment that God issues on earth. According to Romans 1, 18 to 36, you can't find your way out. When God gives you over to the sin that you persist in, the last stage of that, if you remember 118 through 36 in Romans 1, is he gave them over to sensual pleasures. He gave them over to uh, sensual degrading passions. And then the third thing is what? He gave them over to a debased mind. A mind that doesn't even work anymore. You can't reason your way back is the worst form. And God will give you over to that if you consistently, persistently give yourself over to sin. 
The deceitfulness of sin at its core says this. Basically, blank will provide for me blank instead of trusting or obeying God. Blank will provide for me blank instead of trusting or obeying God. Let's fill in the blanks. You're going through a trial. Maybe it's a legal battle. Maybe it's a tax issue or something like that. And you see an illegal way or a shortcut through that trial and you come up against a moral quandary. Do I take the illegal shortcut that seems to solve my problem? Or do I trust in God that He's going to work it out? And that it, it's, even if I ex- experience penalty for wrongdoing, He's going to work that out as well. And so I have this choice whether I can sin and disobey and take the shortcut, be it illegal or whatever, or I can trust God through the difficulty and allow Him to see me through it. The deceitfulness of sin says take the easy way. Or let's say you have a mountain of troubles and you just want to escape. The deceitfulness of sin says that divorce or drinking or drugs or revenge or movies or Netflix and laziness and wine and spending money or some other thing will give comfort or resolve my issue rather than trusting in God and just walking through it with Him. The deceitfulness of sin, you see how that works, right? It's just a lure that says, take the easy way. And it's as old as creation. Adam and Eve, do you want to be like God? You don't have to trust Him and obey Him. Just eat this fruit. If you just eat this, you'll become like Him and you'll know good and evil and you'll be just like God. And they took the sinful easy way. And that's the deceitfulness of sin. It tries to convince you that there's another way other than trust or faith or obedience to God. An honorable mention of the hardness of heart is pride. Pride is a hard, a heart hardener. Pride says, I've got this. I don't need God. I don't pray. Uh, I had a situation this week where I was asking a guy who was in a desperate situation, have you prayed yet? And he said, no. So what's just, are you just not desperate enough? Put enough pressure on people and any person will utter a prayer, even if it's in the inner recesses of their heart. You put enough struggle, enough pain, enough difficulty in a person's life, and prayer becomes as natural as anything. But prayerlessness is your declaration of independence from God. If you want to know if you have a prideful heart, just look at the time logged in prayer. And not bless this or be with those kind of prayers. Bless this injury, be with this person. That's not really the kind of prayer the Bible describes as much as just this utter heart cry of, I need you, Abba Father. Pride reveals a hard heart. Deceitfulness of sin. If you're in a pattern of persistent sin, you have a hard heart. If you put God to the test, you have a hard heart. If you suspect that God is real and He speaks to you, but you just refuse to listen, whether you're disobedient or delayed obedience or rebellious, in all those ways it reveals a hard heart. So what do you do if you have a hard heart? What do you do? Well, hard-heartedness only comes, the resolve only comes through this way. The Bible describes your heart as sick. Jeremiah 17 says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can trust it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. This culture would tell you to follow your heart, right? Just trust your heart, trust your gut, do what feels right. And yet the Bible says that your heart is wickedly deceptive and untrustworthy. 
at all ends. If you want to know how to have a hard heart, how to relieve a hard heart, you need a heart transplant. Uh, Ezekiel 36 describes that process. I will give them a new heart and I will give them a new spirit that I will put within them. I will remove from them a heart of stone from their flesh and I will give them a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my ways and be careful to obey. Listen, if you're not a believer, the only remedy for a hard heart is a new heart. The heart that Jesus provides for you through his death on the cross. When you place your faith and trust in Jesus, he removes this hardened heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh, a heart that responds to your creator. A heart that responds at the soul level to the one who created it. When you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you repent of your sins and you put your faith in Jesus, you get a new heart. And it's only in that way that you can remedy a hard heart. That's if you're an unbeliever. Now, if you're a believer, if you're a believer, the danger is that you'll fall away from God because you have a hardened heart. So for believers in the room, there's a reality that you could fall away for a period or for forever. I tried to talk about that last week before I went to the emergency room and it just didn't work out so well. But, but I tried to talk about the reality that when in the New Testament, when Barnabas and Paul um, went to a new place and led people to faith in Christ, Acts 11 says they encouraged them to remain true with all their heart. In Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas again talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. In Acts 14, when they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, they strengthened the disciples and encouraged them to remain true to the faith. In Acts 20, Paul is warning the church. He says, after I leave, wolves are going to come in and they're not going to spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth to draw away disciples. Within the church, people will fall away and distort the gospel and destroy the church. We see the constant words to remain true and to remain faithful. And that's an admonishment to believers. So there is a real sense in which you, Christ follower, born again believer in the room, that you could fall away from God for a period of time and do damage and destruction to your own life, to your family, to your loved ones, and to others. We see the clear example in Scripture of those who have fallen away, and it's destructive. The remedy, the remedy for believers is given right here in this passage in verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. That's, that'll be revealed if you walk away. If you abandon the faith and at the end of your life you deny that Jesus is the Lord of your life, you regret that you ever gave your life to Christ, that's the proof that you were never a believer to begin with. But if you are a believer, the remedy is this. Uh, exhort one another daily as long as it's called today so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. How do we finish well? We do it by nurturing our faith, by feeding our soul, by feeding your soul. How do you foster and maintain a heart of faith? How do you nurture your faith and war against falling away? In the same way that you put a seed in soil and you give it nutrients and you give it everything it needs to thrive and grow, your faith can be like that. And there is no greater nutrient, no greater food for your soul than God's Word in the context of prayer, worship, and fellowship with other believers. 
If you want to starve your faith, isolate yourself from believers, isolate yourself from the Word, isolate yourself from prayer, and persist in sin, and you will find as a believer, the hardness of your heart will increase and your faith will decrease. There is no greater food for your soul than God's Word in the context of prayer, worship, fellowship with other believers. That's this idea of exhorting one another in genuine, authentic community. You know one of the things I loved most about last week? If there's anything to love about what happened to me and needles and IVs and dehydration and humiliation and not being able to speak a sermon. Like One of the benefits that I found from that is the flood of text messages I got from people in the room who said when Charles came back in the room and shared some scripture and encouraged everybody to circle up and to engage in prayer, that the body became the body. That this wasn't just a professional, slick church gathering with lights and smoke and mirrors, but it was a place where it was a place where genuine believers could circle up and, and pray for a brother in need. It was a, pray, a place where genuine faith could be expressed without fear of, can we do this in church? Can we really watch a guy fail and then pray for him? It was, a, it was a sense of genuine community and authenticity. And, and if there's any silver lining, that was one of them, is that immediately I got texts about how encouraged people were about the genuine faith that was demonstrated and the result of trial and adversity. If you've ever sat around a fire pit on a fall night with friends, that can be so helpful in helping you relax and enjoy and unwind. In the same way, when you feed your soul on Scripture and prayer in the context of loving, faithful community of Christ followers, it just nurtures and grows your faith. And it prevents you from falling away. The alternative is you could starve your faith and watch it shrivel. You could just starve it and watch it shrivel. And experience firsthand the deceitfulness of sin and its harmful effects. Well, as we close this morning, uh, he describes listening to God. Listening to God was a problem with the Exodus generation. Pharaoh and the Israelites listened. They heard. They heard. They just stopped up their ears. They refused to listen. They refused to respond. They refused to come. We understand the difference between here. Here is an auditory thing that happens. But listening, if you're married, you understand. Your wife might ask, did you hear me? Oh, yeah, I heard you. But I just might not have listened well. right? I didn't listen. I didn't take it in. I didn't regard it. I didn't take it to heart. Listening. Do you hear Laurel or Yanny, right? <laughs> no, that weird, odd, uh, did you hear that thing? Is you don't know what you heard. You, you heard one thing or you heard another. And, and in some ways, listening to God can be confusing for people. And so let me kind of break it down in a way that's most simple. In the very beginning of my faith, in Revelation 3, it says, you know, do the things you did at first, that there's a, there's a simplicity to a new believer. And in the simplicity of faith, in the newness of my walk with God, all I knew, all right, all I knew is that I had five or six unbearable, horrible things happening in my life as a result of my own choices. Really painful things. Hard, difficult, terrible burdens that were just overwhelming to me. And when I came to faith in Christ, all I knew was that I should pray, pouring out my heart to God in sincerity in authenticity and vulnerability, just telling God all about my problems, and then just earnestly reading Scripture to find the answer. 
And you know what I found? Is that when I got into that rhythm of pouring my heart out to God about whatever it was, the burden that I was facing, when I zealously, passionately sought Him, and then I spoke to Him in prayer, and then I listened to Him passionately through the reading of His Word, in the context of believers, in the context of a community of faith. You know what I found? I found that I heard from God really clearly. And He would say things to me and I would respond in obedience and I would grow. And He would say things to me and I would respond in obedience and I would grow. And He would say things to me and I would respond in rebellion and disobedience and my growth would be stunted and I would repent and then I would come back later and I would hear from Him clearly and He would tell me and I would respond in obedience and grow. And and the process was cyclical over and over again. That As I persisted in seeking Him, walking with Him and listening to Him and responding with faith and obedience, I found growth. And the opposite was true. I found hardening when I didn't do those things. Do you have a hard heart? Are you a believer? Are you an unbeliever? Do you need a new heart? Do you need to repent of the deceitfulness of sin? Whatever it is that you feel like God is speaking to you today about, Do not harden your hearts. Listen and obey. Father, thank You for this Word. Thank You that uh, it was important enough that You gave me two chances to speak it. Uh, Thank You, Lord, that You have something to say to people here. Uh, Thank You, Lord, that, uh, that You give them the opportunity now to decide in their own heart what they will do, whether to persist in sin and disobedience or whether to trust You and walk according to Your ways. I pray that you would grant life in this room to those who have heard your voice. I pray that you would soften hardened hearts. And I pray that you would grant faith to those who are desperately seeking you. And relieve them of the issues that are plaguing them on a daily basis. Would you use your word today for your glory and for your majesty. In Jesus' name, amen.